Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Today's scripture reading can be found in the book of Mark, chapter 15, verses 33 to 39, if you'd like to read along. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There are some memories for me that though they happened years and years and years ago, I can recall the emotions incredibly easily. For instance, the scene was Dallas, Texas. I was eight years old. I was doing my least favorite errand with my mother, which was shopping at the mall. In absolute boredom, I began to uh, consider what could I do to spice up this moment. And then I saw uh, a window display, uh, seeing mannequins, uh, you know, arranged perfectly in this. And I had this incredible idea which was, I'm going to join this family. So I struck my pose in that, uh, in that display, waiting to scare the next uh, mall walker or shopper there at Dillard's. I lost myself, uh, my sense of time there, as I was just enjoying uh, sharing my, uh, the fear uh, with these different shoppers. And then I began to realize that I had lost track of time. And more importantly, I had lost track of my mother. Now, eight years old, being found in a a mall without any sort of clue where my mother had gone, I began running around the different carousels of women's clothing uh, with tears streaming down my face, feeling like I was completely alone. Now, though I am not afraid of Dillard's anymore, I've had that experience, that emotional experience over and over in my life, and I'm sure that you have had that as well, the sense of being left behind, abandoned, isolated, lonely. The fourth statement that we find here on Jesus' cross is an echo of that type of experience. It's this cry of absolute desperation. Uh, One of the ways that people talked about this fourth statement is this is called the cry of dereliction. Dereliction means abandonment. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Our scripture reading here in Mark is an awful scene. It says that when, when it was noon, things went dark. I don't believe that's only a, a description of the sun and the physical appearance that was there in that moment, but I believe a deeper darkness was beginning to settle in in this moment. In Mark's gospel, I find it interesting that this statement that we have here is the only statement that's written in this account. It's almost as if the writer of the gospel of Mark, I mean, he saw everything else. He knew of the experience, the onlookers, 
the soldiers bartering for his clothes, the mourners that were gathered at his feet, the criminal to his side. Yet one statement stood out. It was the statement of profound meaning. My God, why have you forsaken me? I wonder if this statement could be the most mysterious out of the seven. It seems to me like it is. It, it's a statement that opens up more questions than it seems to answer. And because it's so mysterious, we might just skim over it, gloss over it. But I believe that this statement invites us to slow down, to wonder, consider, meditate, not only on the meaning of these words, but the experiences that caused Jesus to say this. As I have reflected on this statement over this past week, three different meanings have emerged for me. The first is that this is a statement of mysterious anguish. A statement of mysterious anguish. We will never know the experience that Jesus had upon the cross, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't consider it. We oftentimes, when we have this picture of the cross and Jesus's moment there, we can focus on the physical pain of suffering that Jesus experienced in those three hours. But the statement of dereliction opens up a window for us to consider a deeper experience, a deeper pain, a suffering that Jesus had. Jesus looked into the darkness of that moment and asked God, his father, a question. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Where are you? I believe we can't begin to understand or comprehend the pain or anguish that is in that statement, in that question. It's one of our unique beliefs as followers of Christ that for all of eternity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit lived with this perfect harmony and unity. There is like this flow of delight and love that existed for all of time. And, and it was, we were created, all of, all of this was created as an overflow of that experience. God did not create out of loneliness or boredom, but it was the overflow of harmony and unity that spilled over into this creative work that God did. Yet in Genesis 3, there began a great tragedy. For the first time in experience, creation had this brokenness. They had lost this abiding, perfect connection with God. And instead of God just giving up, God began a new work to redeem and to restore humanity back to God again. And it's in that divine rescue mission that Jesus came to this world 2,000 years ago. And ultimately, that divine rescue mission led Jesus to the cross. And Jesus here upon this cross, he experiences something that he had never experienced before, a forsakenness, brokenness, abandonment, isolation, that in this place, Jesus had, uh, had broken the seamlessness of joy and delight that he had had with the Father. And in the place, he had this divine loneliness, estrangement take place. We find in Scripture this description that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the remarkable, astounding work of grace that we see on the cross. It's this great transference 
that takes place, the union and joy and, and eternal peace that God had with God's self, this perfect untarnished connection was provided for us. And in its place, Jesus chose to experience the weight of sin, the weight of brokenness and division, something that's common to all of us. Jesus chose to assume that into himself. And this, is the, this transference is the only way that Jesus could promise that we will be with him in paradise is because he experienced the forsakenness on this cross. And as Jesus hung on the cross, he was alone. In the moment of complete vulnerability where he needed God the most, Jesus received silence, abandonment, and divine isolation. It's a great tragedy that we might never begin to understand. And yet, it's something that we find that serves us. It provides for us. It's this mysterious anguish. But it's more than just mysterious anguish. It's also surprising worship. Jesus wasn't just saying a question, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was actually quoting a psalm. The psalms are in the middle of the Bible. They're uh, the Jewish uh, community's prayer book and also their worship book. In the same way we gather and we, some churches have hymns, the Jewish community would have the psalms and they would sing it together in their temple, in their worship, as well as in their private life. They would recite these psalms. And this, this moment that we have here on the cross, with this statement of dereliction is actually a quote from a particular psalm. So you could even wonder if in this moment Jesus was praying the psalm or maybe even worshiping in this tragic moment. It seems so odd for us, but imagine someone on their deathbed using some of their last breaths to whisper a song. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved." For those who have sang Amazing Grace, you would know that this, that this moment was someone recalling this beautiful song that perhaps was used at funerals in their past and moments of worship and maybe even private devotion. They would know that, that this was from Amazing Grace. And similarly, people there at the foot of the cross, they would hear Jesus saying the statement of, why have you forsaken me? And they would know if they knew the Psalms that this was Psalm 22. It's the very first line in that psalm. It's such an odd thing that such a dark statement would be used in a song. Really, that kind of dark tone is something that the community would gather and, and sing together. We prefer, our, our culture, our, our cultural moment even, it prefers anthems of deliverance, a victory song with a catchy hook that reminds us of our hope in God. But there are whole sections of our scripture, whole sections of psalms that that are psalms of lament. They are psalms that hold a minor tone, a minor key. They are cries of suffering from those who are afflicted by oppression. They are psalms that wonder, oh God, where are you? Psalm 22 is a psalm from King David that he wrote when he was experiencing the hands of his own uh, enemies. And there are profound parallels in Psalm 22 in Jesus' experience on the cross. What we find there is, I mean, it's more than just parallels. These are prophecy, words of prophecy that are being fulfilled on the cross. And it's as if Jesus doesn't want them or us to miss it. 
And so Jesus begins, this is in Psalm 22. I want you just to hear the profound parallels in this. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver them, since he delights in him. A pack of villains, they encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People are staring and gloating over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. This gathered community, perhaps they would begin to realize when Jesus said this statement that begins Psalm 22, they maybe began to connect the dots of what was happening here in this, in this psalm that was used for worship. In singing or saying these words, not only was Jesus connecting the dots into King David's suffering, but perhaps even connecting the dots into the gathered community and how they use these own words and their own prayers and their own worship when they were filled with sorrow. Perhaps in their own moments of darkness, they turned to Psalm 22 when they experienced their own abandonment, when they wondered where God was, when they ran out of words to pray. And so they turned to Scripture with a hope and a prayer. And Jesus, he's picking up the refrain. And for all those who knew the psalm, they would know that but they would also know that where the cry of abandonment leads. This psalm is not just a pathetic psalm. It's not just a sad dirge. This psalm turns in verse 24 and it says, For God has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not done that. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Perhaps Jesus was saying these words not only as a cry, but also as a statement of faith sung into the darkness, into the void, that though he felt alone, he believed, as the psalm said, that he would still be heard by the one who seems hidden. Many of you perhaps have come to these moments of your own life, and you've said similar words. When you ran out of faith, when you ran out of prayers, what this moment teaches us, what this Psalm teaches us, and what Jesus upon the cross has for us is that our cries of desperation and our questions of abandonment are still holy and sacred. God does not care just for our happy-go-lucky worship and praise and anthems that we have, but also God wants to know the deep, honest questions of doubt and of suffering when we wonder if God is there and we actually say into the void of those moments, God hears it. And it's those moments are just as sacred. We need to broaden our prayer book. Our prayer book as a church, we need to broaden our prayer book in our own lives with God. We need to expand what we think of as worshipful for our scripture and our savior are here to teach us that there's profound worship in the dark nights of our soul. And we can join Jesus in believing that God still hears us and in time God will respond. So the statement upon the cross was first, a statement of mysterious anguish. Secondly, it was a statement of surprising worship. And finally, this is a statement 
of redeeming solidarity. A statement of redeeming solidarity. Solidarity means just to stand with each other, stand by each other. This sacred and tragic question that Jesus poses is common to humanity. If you haven't asked this question to God, give it time. I'm sure you will if you experience enough of life. Many of us have uttered this question, if not in prayer, then in complaint. Come on, God, where are you? You see, to be human is to struggle with this painful problem that if there is an all-powerful, all-loving God, how can God allow so much suffering in this world? If God is truly with us and for us, how come how can we experience so much tragedy in our life? I know for me, my experience of suffering and, and uh, heartbreaking tragedy came seven years ago uh, when I was, got married to my wife, Jen. One of the wonderful side benefits is that a friend of mine from college had already married Jen's sister. And so I came uh, with a brother-in-law named Clay, who is already a friend, and he became a dearer friend. He was one, at, one, of, one out of a million but on the way home to pick up his wife at the end of a, a work day, uh, pick up his wife for a date night, an 18-wheeler hydroplaned uh, swerved onto his lane, and in a split second, Clay was taken, uh, leaving, leaving behind two young children and a, and a wife ready to go out on a date. Um, this took place, um, oddly, when Jen and I, we were on a trip that we had been planning and hoping and saving for for years. We were a bucket list trip that we, we, we had planned. We were in Italy, and in this moment, we were driving from Tuscany to Rome, to go, and we decided to pull over and go on a hike, this well-known hike um, that uh, we wanted to go to. So I turned on my phone just to check in and make sure everything was fine, and what I found was just this litany of text messages coming in with condolences. And uh, completely afraid of what happened, I called my mother-in-law, who was watching our daughter, Dylan, and all she could muster out was a, just a statement that Clay had died. Um, I was in shock. Jen collapsed, and everything in our life came to a halt. But we were stuck in Rome. Unable to return for 24 hours, we were stuck there in Italy. And it was so odd to be in a place such a, such beauty and history but with um, such sorrow. And I remember the moment when I was by myself for the first time. We had checked in our hotel. Jen went downstairs to get something, and I was left in the hotel room alone. I had been holding in my anger for hours. And when Jen stepped out, I just turned to God, not knowing what to say and not caring enough to actually try to craft a prayer. I just remember extending my hands towards God, and the only thing I could say is, you're getting all of this. And I just began to acknowledge my incredible amount of anger, my doubt, my questions, my uh, overwhelming bitterness. And it, looking back without words, I think that was probably one of the most honest prayers of my life. After some time, after hours of being in that hotel room, we grow tired of those walls. And so we decided just to walk around, hit up a couple spots. And it was just bizarre, the juxtaposition of being in this such romantic, historic, moving place, yet uh, just moving to different locations and just crying with each other. We looked absolutely pathetic. I'm sure people looked at us and thought, just another honeymoon off the tracks. Um, 
One of the spots we visited was St. Peter's Basilica. We entered into this ornate, incredibly beautiful chapel with herds of tourists, cameras in hand, ready to snap it all up. And I began walking through this grand place that was so sacred, and I found myself incredibly annoyed. I think it was the bigness, the ornateness, the grandeur of the space felt so off to me. God is so powerful, so beautiful, so good. Really? Feeling far from God, I was ready to leave. I turned around, and on the way out, I began to see a statue off to the left-hand side of the basilica just before the door. I went closer, and I saw it was a statue called Pieta, constructed by Michelangelo, his only statue that I believe he constructed. And the statue is of two different figures, of Mother Mary and her son Jesus, who is a lifeless corpse resting in his mother's arms. And as I stared at this statue, I began to realize that Mary's posture was the exact same as mine in that hotel room, arms extending, beholding Jesus. Was she holding her son, or was she extending Jesus to God? Was she extending Jesus to us? I thought about the hotel, and I thought about how my body and Mary's body were mirroring each other. And in my prayer, I was giving God all my anger, my frustration, my doubt, my bitterness. And here's Mary's arms offering Jesus in response. You see, the question of pain and suffering that we are afflicted with in this life, this abandonment that comes to all of us as followers of Christ, we do not have easy tropes. We don't, we don't have a quip or a cliche to make things okay. We don't have a prayer to make it all go away. What we have instead is a crucified Savior, a Savior who knows what it's like to pray into the dark void, to be abandoned by all loved ones, and to feel as if God is gone. You see, Jesus went through his own abandonment so that we would know when the darkness seems to envelop us, we will never be alone. We will never be forsaken. For Christ was in the most God-forsaken space, and he cried out in his own desperation to assure us that we won't be alone. I have come to the belief, I don't know if it's, if it's right theologically or whatever else, if it might be heretical, but I've come to the own belief in my life, my own journey, that I don't know if I could trust God had it not been for the cross. I could fear God, I could revere God, but I don't know if I could trust God and I don't think I could love God. But seeing Jesus, God's only son, crying out is solidarity with you and I in this divine loneliness who loved us enough to come all the way into the pit of despair. That brings me not only healing, but it brings me this great love and affection. So for those who are in a moment of suffering right now, I just want you to know that God has not forsaken you. God is not indifferent to your pain. He's not away from you, but he hears you, he knows you, 
he loves you. With Jesus' cross, the statement that we hear on this day in the eventual empty tomb, I can tell you with all faith that nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing, nothing. Jesus went into the very pit of despair in the most forsaken way to show us the redeeming power of his healing and his rescuing so that each and every one of us would know that Christ is with us all the way down. You will never be forsaken by your crucified Savior. And so we are grateful for this statement, for the healing it is, for the mysterious anguish that Jesus experienced, for the surprising worship that it was so that we would know that our Redeemer not only lives, but he dies alongside of us. He suffers alongside of us so that we could be assured we belong to him both now and forever.